tether the entity ultimately sees the upside of if like Bitcoin and precious metals do well and do more than just hold their value. So it's basically like to some degree, the issuer is taking risk at the expense of the holder of the token. And so it's never really made a ton of sense why someone like Tether would hold non-stable assets, especially in this environment when you can get five to five and a half percent on overnight treasury bills. Hey, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, morning, how are you? Hey Ryan, hey Jack. I've been watching Jack Ryan, the TV show. (laughs) In the last like two <laughs> weeks, and it's just weird to say, "Hey, Jackie Ryan," together. <laughs> um, how you guys doing? I think it's been a while since the three of us are all together. Yeah, and we don't have the we don't have the whole band today. Jason, Jason couldn't make it. Um, but you know, good to see you guys. Good to see you too. Um, so we have a, we have a couple of stories today. Um, so I think we can we can jump right in. The the first um is around some new capabilities coming to MetaMask. Um, and Parth, I know, we, you know, we, we talk a lot about wallets, um, you know, in this venue. So really curious to kind of hear what those updates are and kind of what the impact will be for users and the user experience using, you know, software wallets. Um, and then, you know, a really interesting story, maybe um, emerging um, with Tether in their most recent, um, their most recent kind of attestation around their reserves um, and some loans that they've had outstanding. So with that, you know, before we jump into those stories, uh, Parth, what did you try last week? Yeah, so um, so I want to talk about AirGap, which is uh, this self-custody wallet system. But before we go into that, I have a question for both of you. Do you guys know anyone or do you have any friends who just got into crypto, like in 2022 or 2023? I mean, probably. Yeah, People... maybe early 2022, yeah. end of 2021. It hasn't been like it hasn't the market hasn't really been conducive. You really only hear about people jumping in when the market is when we're in a, a bull market. Right. So that's what I thought. So the reason why I asked that is because I um, I recently was talking to this Anon on Discord and they joined crypto in the beginning of this year. And so so this person introduced me to AirGap because they just got to into the rabbit hole of self-custody. And it's just so different to listen to stuff from their perspective for someone who just joined crypto, because you obviously are not scouring through a bunch of resources. You have way more tools, way more information and more more guides. But uh, I want to talk about AirGap today. So this person, uh, let's call them XV1, 
they they recently understood the importance of self custody and i know uh, on this call i know uh, both jack and ryan have used hardware wallets in the past in fact we used to experiment with a few of them a few years ago um so you might know that thinking about getting a cold wallet or a hardware wallet is obviously an investment decision which not every person can afford in fact a lot of people want are are kind of naturally apprehensive before making this commitment and they want to try out if self custody is for them or not so they want to try it out as an experiment and that's where airgap which is a crypto wallet system comes in so airgap is an open source ios app which turns your old phone so if you have one of these lying around they turn your old phone into a wallet so if you have a spare phone which is useless you can convert that into an offline hardware wallet uh and it does support eth bitcoin cosmos and 21 other blockchains uh but that's what airgap is so so how does it work though right because i mean one of like the i guess core principles of of hardware wallets is that they're they're basically airgapped from the beginning of time right and there's you know a high level of emphasis around supply chain and and where the parts are sourced from and you know basically from the time it's manufactured to it arriving you know in your possession right um all of those are like vulnerabilities so you know a phone that has been you know hot right connected to internet that you've presumably done a lot of transactions on like what does the security profile on that look like parth so so Ryan that's a great question the idea of airgapped in information security is to have physical isolation from the network right so the way this works is you use your spare phone reset it and then never connect to wifi since this is supposed to be airgapped and so for this system you need two devices one would be a hot device and the second is a cold device the cold device is your uh, offline spare phone which i was talking about and the hot device is your normal phone it could be your browser could be your metamask extension where where you mostly do transactions now install the airgap vault app on the spare phone and generate a new private key just like you would in an, in every single wallet mm. and then you'll use a regular wallet do transactions just like you do but when you wish to confirm transactions that's where things become different so you'll need to scan a qr code from your spare phone and send the digital signature from the hardware wallet this is where the airgap logic comes in so all of this is possible through qr code transmission so you can communicate using qr codes but it's a nice experiment if you haven't tried self custody yet and if you have an old phone lying around then i think it's a it's a it's a fun experiment to try self custody uh especially digital signatures on your spare phone for for doing transactions Yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, I'm sure most people have, you know, an old phone sitting in a drawer somewhere. Um Yeah. I guess for experimentation purposes it makes sense, but I think this is probably where we should kind of caveat that, you know, it's it's really, you know, testing only, right? Based on our own experience at this point. Um and if, you know, the, the custody, you know, scheme that you use should become more robust, you know, when you're talking about larger dollar uh holdings. Yeah, I've been I've been using it for the last 2 days, so it's still very fresh for me, but it's it's so far a relatively safer way to store funds compared to using a hot wallet, right? And the good part is you can also connect with MetaMask, so instead of using a ledger, you can sign transactions with your uh old spare phone. Uh that's kind of the idea. People have talked a lot about how like 
maybe Apple or Samsung could integrate a secure like hardware element into phones. And it's just kind of ironic that you can use an old phone that's not connected to the internet with a, you know, an open source application downloaded on it as basically the offline secure element. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little irony there. It's funny that you bring that up because I was thinking the same thing with regard to like purpose built phones that are really meant to be hardware. I mean, we, you know, have seen, I, I was, it's a Solana like mm-hmm. branded phone, right? Um, and there's others, you know, I think other like, you know, Android based phones that have come out with like secure element that you can use to store NFTs and other types of tokens. But I'm not really sure like, you know, how big of a market that, you know, really is. Um, again, you know, when you think about, maintaining the level of separation between your connected life and, you know, securely storing these assets in cold devices, um, you know, like a, you know, internet connected device. I don't know. I think for like the, the hardcore crypto maxis, right. That's kind of like a hard, um, thing to wrap your head around just from a security standpoint. But don't you think the way that we're doing it now is relatively like, we'll look back 20 years from now and say it was pretty archaic. I mean, I probably and like eventually people will get comfortable with the fact that like that secure element is integrated into an existing like everyday device that you use. And like, sure, you can trust it for like the average person. Sure, there'll always be a subset of users that will say like, no, I need to keep everything completely separate. Um, And maybe that is good advice while things are still experimental when things are first launched. But outside of that, like eventually we'll probably get to that state. It's more and more people right. don't question privacy or security of these. Yeah, I think you're right, but I I think it's going to require like a further degree of distribution with like multi-sigs and like, you know, like social recovery. And I know that's like a hot button issue, right? Because like the truth is these devices go everywhere with us and, you know, they can fall and get run over by cars and fall into, you know, the lakes and, you know, whatever bad thing that could happen to a phone, right? Like you don't want, you know, a material amount of your wealth on a device, you know, and that can't be recovered. But yeah, I do agree better with you. recovery I mean, like, methods than like yeah. twelve words on it. Right. Yeah. Those those things are happening now. By the way, it's just that you like they're not as mainstream. So like Samsung has a, a digital wallet. You can do digital signatures, not on for crypto, but you can do all of that. Social recovery is now like and any new wallet that I see has social recovery, and maybe that's yeah. a good segue to uh to talk about it yeah let's let's talk a bit about uh metamasks and and this new capability um called snaps that they've rolled out um parth you you mind just taking us through kind of what it is that it does um and how it how it kind of integrates with metamask as people would know it yeah sure so uh so last week metamask announced uh snaps in beta uh in fact they did launch it in in beta and so similar to browser extensions, snaps allow extra functionalities on your on your wallet. So they're typically a permissionless system for builders to add more functions on MetaMask. So think about snaps like plugins uh, with some sort of small functionality. So right now for snaps, you have a few snaps for interoperability, which means you can connect your MetaMask to Solana or even Bitcoin using MetaMask snaps. It's also for notifications, but the snaps that I'm using for are, are more around transaction insights. So before making a digital signature, I want to make sure I know what I'm signing up for. Now, you might say, why is this important? Uh, why are snaps? Why do they matter? One big problem in the past that I'm sure a lot of us have faced is that if you want 
to use different blockchains, you have to use different wallets, right? Which is obviously a headache. So I have one wallet for Bitcoin, one for ETH, one for Cosmos, one for Solana, right? And I have I have more, but like that's that's what an average person would do, which is obviously a big headache. Right. With Snaps, you can build extensions which connect to your favorite blockchain. And that introduces people to new products and new ecosystems, which they would have not tried otherwise. Uh, and so, while using while using MetaMask as kind of the foundation. Absolutely, exactly. So, what does that integration like look like, technically speaking, right? Because, like, again, these MetaMask Hot Wallet, you know, not as secure as cold storage, um, but you know, at the same time, like, you know, like there is a degree of security around even you know a Hot Wallet, right? And so, when you kind of start building things on top of um, you know, a wallet like MetaMask, I would think you would need to give it, you know, some of these other applications access. And I kind of, again, start thinking about what the security implications of that are. So, so that's a great question, because that's the first question that anyone would ask right now. When the, the moment you hear about third party, you're like, what about security, right? What about right. information security? So the first thing that MetaMask has done is that whatever snaps get onboarded, they, they manually vet, they audit them uh, with uh, with the MetaMask developers and then third-party developers who audit these snaps. And that's why you can see them um, on the MetaMask App Store, if you want to call it that. And the second is these snaps are isolated from your uh, holdings, uh, your transaction history. And so, and so mostly they are isolated from your MetaMask account data, which means that the snaps do not get access to that information. All they get access to is your transaction that you're making live and they obviously need that to to provide inputs um, okay. on that transaction. So I would say it's pretty, uh, I think even though they want to aim for a permissionless system, like almost like an app store where you can build your snaps, but uh, initially they're kind of handholding the first few developers who are uh, pushing out new snaps. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually have a little bit of experience using, um, using this. Um, last week I was playing around trying to bridge, um, some ETH into Solana and there obviously isn't a really good way to do that currently. And so I actually used one of the MetaMask snaps to do this. Um, and I would say that, you know, it, it feels like this is like layering of capabilities, um, you know, on top of MetaMask. And it kind of felt that way, right? Like it didn't feel, it's not a unified experience necessarily like in the MetaMask UI for people who use that, right? It's kind of, you have to bridge out to different, um, like Soulflare, for example, when you're dealing with Solana and then, you know, kind of have to, there's multiple hops to get it back into your wallet. So I agree with you. I think it's like, it's a good augmentation of capabilities and asset coverage within MetaMask but it's i would say far from like a one stop you know shop in terms of like experience um for the user to that point Ryan do i mean do we think that ultimately the like the data on how much people are using certain applications as snaps would lead to like further integration if everybody wants to whatever like you said bridge from eth to solana or eth to bitcoin and they find right. that tons of users are doing this and the user experience is still relatively fragmented, even though there's like this quasi integration that's allowed that's not like fully MetaMask, but allows you to use other applications. Do we think that that is like step one of like everything's in beta that's in snaps kind of? And then mm -hmm. if enough people are using it, that integration could be more cleanly built into the existing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a real opportunity there again, based on my experience. So um, I feel like that's like kind of a big threat to every like newcomer wallet 
to nice. MetaMask because one of the big value props was like if you were not MetaMask, at least you could have like multi-asset support and some of these other capabilities that they didn't have. And then now MetaMask obviously turning this on starts to allow them to defend themselves to some I, degree. I think, I think MetaMask did something really strategic here, which I think we should talk about. So it almost seems like a new self-custody wallet provider pops up every single week, right? And they want to compete with MetaMask. So instead of competing with these hundreds of wallets on features, they built this ecosystem where anyone can build their favorite plugin based on user demand. So now MetaMask does not have to constantly guess what the users need or what's the latest feature they should have because now someone will build it for them as an extension. It's like having right. an app store, basically, right? The core applications are the MetaMask wallet themselves, and then all of these developers can build things that you can then use, and they're yeah. gaining users as a result of it or can, uh, keeping abs- users absolutely. in their ecosystem as a result yeah. of it. Yeah, like I, I would make this prediction that in the next, I don't know, few months. And again, Ryan, based on your user experience, this is like day nine of MetaMask Snap, so I'm sure it's going to get better. But I could almost see a bunch of new snaps around estate planning. I could see someone building an OFAC compliant snap, right? So you can see how powerful this can get because now you can do custom logic on your wallet. So instead of getting an institutional grade wallet, you could just have a bunch of really good snaps. Um, And again, what's really powerful here is that MetaMask has... 30 million monthly active users. So it's obviously got a, a big, big, uh, th- that's what people would gauge user demand based yeah. on MetaMask users and then uh, build snaps. But I think that's where it gets really interesting. Um, but maybe I think we should also talk about wallets in general, right? So I know we spoke about smart contract wallets or account abstraction exactly a year ago, uh, remember? So yeah. Maybe yeah, and I, and I feel we we probably should revisit it, you know, and just kind of with an update as to where all of that at is at, because like I feel like, and this is my opinion, I feel like there's been less maybe movement on that front. Like I think it was like a big deal when it got when it got announced, um, but in terms of like an adoption stamp from an adoption standpoint, I. I don't think so. Um, and maybe because uh, I Ryan, I have numbers to back back up my argument, but. Um, so maybe let's, so before we start going into smart contract wallets or account abstraction, uh, for those who, for those of you who are kind of relatively new to the term, imagine a wallet, which is smart and customizable. That's exactly what a smart contract wallet is. So you want to connect to Uniswap only. You can do that. If you want to pay your gas fee in Dogecoin or USDC, you can do that using account abstraction. So the idea is to implement some sort of custom logic on your wallet. Now, Going to the numbers, what's really surprising to me is that in the last month, you have close to 400,000 accounts which use smart wallets, right? So that's a relatively decent number. The biggest use case that I've seen so far is decentralized applications will pay for your gas fee or they will sponsor your gas fee as an incentive for using using that dApp. So I know, Ryan, you and I were talking about uh, how you had to do a bunch of transactions and you lost a lot of money in transaction fee these applications will sponsor uh, your gas fee and that can be made possible by using smart contract wallets. So you have to have a smart contract wallet to have someone sponsor your gas fee. So 400,000 active addresses, Parth? Mm-hmm. 400,000 accounts, yes. Out of how, do, do we have, do we know how that compares to like total number of active it, addresses? Yeah. That's in like million. So like MetaMask yeah. has 30 million. So it's obviously still a small number, but I want to yeah. talk about how fast it's grown in the last 
uh, eight to nine months. Yeah. But the the use case about sponsoring gas fees is almost equivalent to how when you sign up for a new product, you get 15% off on your first order, right? And so, so if you don't sign up, like if you don't have a smart contract wallet, you cannot avail that offer, right? So to me, it's almost like a no-brainer. But mm. close to half a million dollars has been spent just on sponsoring gas fee for different accounts. So you know that that's a relatively big number and that's just one use case of smart contract wallets. And so what I'm seeing now is that more and more new applications are becoming smart contract compatible. And and you see a lot of this development more active on L2s like Arbitrum and Polygon and Optimism. Um, So that's kind of, that's what I've seen with respect to smart contract wallets in the last uh, nine to 10 months. Yeah, no, that's certainly more material than I had an appreciation for. Um, and I think we probably should maybe do a broader deep dive on that uh, in the coming weeks, Barth. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's let's um, let's jump over to Tether. Um, so Jack, you want to just talk a little bit about the story that the most recent uh, attestations are are saying and kind of what, what people in the space are, are saying it might mean? Yeah, absolutely. So Tether, Tether Holdings, I think it's the name of the actual company. Of course, the issuer of USDT, the Tether stablecoin, that's the largest stablecoin in crypto, 60, 70 billion in circulation. Uh, second is Circle, USDC token. And those are basically the two, like Pareto wise, like they own almost the entire stablecoin market between the two in terms of market cap. That's 90% plus of, of crypto stablecoin market cap. And Tether has always had this sort of longstanding uh, existence, offshore uh, appearance of sort of uh, s- trying to steer clear of uh, transparency and regulators in large part, I would say. And in the past like year and a half, uh, that pushback led them to starting to publish attestations within the last two years. And originally, those attestations uh, came from uh, a Cayman Islands entity that nobody had really ever heard of. Uh, about a year ago, that transitioned to BDO Italia, which is a, a part of BDO, the accounting firm. Uh, and they, they still publish these attestations, which show their reserves. And functionally, how does a stablecoin work? Of course, there are supposed to be actual dollars or often like treasury bills that are earning yield for the issuer of that stablecoin. And there's the actual tokens in circulation on chain. And ideally, there is as much or more in treasury bills or collateral that is ideally stable uh, that matches the the number of tokens that are in circulation. And one of the line items that Tether has had since, I believe, inception of these attestations over two years ago is uh, a line item around secured loans. And this has always been something that like you look at, and it's a small percentage of what they have said that they hold. The vast majority at the moment, 75% of assets for each dollar of Tether, according to these attestations, is held in treasury bills or these stable, essentially risk-free uh, U.S. government debt. Um, and then there's a portion that is held in like precious metals and Bitcoin. And again, if you're a holder of Tether, 
you don't get the upside of that. Tether, the entity, ultimately sees the upside of if like Bitcoin and precious metals do well uh, and do more than just hold their value. So it's it's basically like to some degree the issuer is taking risk at the expense of the holder of the token. And so it's never really made a ton of sense why someone like Tether would would hold non-stable assets. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in this environment, when you can get five to five and a half percent on overnight treasury bills, like it a, sounds a like a pretty solid. It sounds like a model. great business yeah. model, right? <laughs> if you have sixty, yep. seventy billion in in issuance that exist, then all you need is for people to hold those and trust that they'll stay at a dollar. You don't even really have to take any risk. You can own risk-free U.S. treasuries, and you can print five and a half percent and effectively keep it all for yourself under the current model, where stable coins don't pay interest out to their to their holders on chain. Um, right. But there's ultimately risk being taken by Tether, according to these attestations. Some of it comes in the form of volatile collateral, like precious metals and Bitcoin. And then the other piece, which got picked up in a, a Wall Street Journal article in which a journalist reached out to Tether, is this portion of secured loans. And it's become like you can sort of read the tea leaves and some of the things that have been said and to understanding that it's likely Bitcoin, ETH or some sort of crypto collateral that is being held in order to issue these tether. And so, in effect, what you have happening is some sort of crypto collateral and then an issuance of these tether tokens and no actual U.S. dollars being taken in. Again, it's mm-hmm. a, sh- a small portion, uh, but it's but it's been a growing portion and tether said you know over a year ago that they were trying to sort of basically clean up their reserves and get rid of loans like these and over the past two quarters like if we go back two quarters into the most recent attestation the actual dollar value grew in terms of these secured loans from 5.3 billion to 5.5 billion which a small incremental change from where it was but they're not getting rid of these loans uh, and I'll, I'll just read you a quote that the spokesperson from tether said Um, In response to this Wall Street Journal uh, journalist reaching out, they said, during the second quarter of 2023, we received a few short-term loan requests from clients with whom we have cultivated longstanding relationships, and we made the decision to accommodate these requests. And then she goes on to say, basically, our goal is to prevent any significant depletion of our customers' liquidity or the need for them to sell their collateral at potentially unfavorable unfavorable prices, which could result in losses. And then they went on to, to state that their goal is to eliminate these by 2024, so to get rid of these secured loans. But functionally, what is happening is the issuance of a U.S. dollar stablecoin without like actual U.S. dollar collateral. Instead, right. what appears to be happening is like Bitcoin or Ethereum is being taken from some entity that needs dollars and has volatile crypto assets. And that leads you to think, like, could it be like an offshore exchange that has liquidity issues? And you're getting like flashbacks to things that happened in 2022. Just makes you pause and and think twice about it. I want to be the devil's advocate here because I know know there's already a lot of FUD around Heather, but their redemption process almost always works. Like when I track on-chain, they have seen redemptions of more than 300, 400 million dollars, right? And those redemptions work. So for some reason, like I think we've we spoke about this earlier, but some somehow the redemption and the minting process for Tether works. It's not as approachable, mm-hmm. but it still just works fine. I do want to say that Tether globally has emerged as one of the top buyers for US Treasury bills. They have close to 72.5 billion US dollars. But going back to Jack, what you were talking about, how 
there is not as much upside and more risk if you're holding Tether. I think a lot of the market says that. So you have a lot of crypto traders um, where you see any sort of volatility, they almost always deplete the uh, the curve three pool and uh, take USDC and die instead of uh, USDT. So a lot of times in volatile, so we've seen that in the past where yeah. whenever there is any sort of big volatility, the three curve pool um, almost always has more than 40% or 50% of tether instead of USDC or die. Yeah, it's that. That's a great point, and I I just would wanted to highlight that I think some of the the sensitivity that you're seeing here is because t Tether kind of has a pretty long history, right, of not meeting the transparency kind of requirements that are expected from a lot of users in the space, um, and so I, I feel like there's a you know a, a pretty heavy emphasis. Um, or, or at least scrutiny around what they do, right? Um, and, and these loans, I think when you pair that with kind of the market conditions that we've seen over the last year and a half, as well as some of the kind of negative effects we we've, we saw from, you know, crypto collateralized lending, it's not surprising that people, this this kind of puts people on edge, right? I think, um, you know, when you're, when you're having a secured loan against any volatile asset, right? It kind of lends itself to the question as to, you know, what, you know, what that the position of that loan is, especially on an issue or you know stablecoin issue or like like um, tether. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I might add here is like, of course, the business model will work if people come in to redeem and they're coming in to redeem a, a billion dollars, right? Because you're nobody's saying like even if let's believe the attestations are true, there's just a portion of collateral that is not actually held in stable value assets, and so let's just say that $10 billion wanted to redeem overnight. They could probably fulfill it, right? Yeah. But but then the portion that is secured loans becomes a larger portion of everybody else right. that's a holder. And so the, mm -hmm. the problem is like at some point, does that ever become an issue or problematic? And like we go back to 2008 with, uh, I think it was called the Reserve Fund, which is when the money market fund, like the straw broke the camel's back and uh, the Reserve Fund went from trading at a dollar to like 99 or 98 cents. And there was like widespread panic. And we've of course seen Tether break peg and then repeg many times. But the concern always is, is like, if this is an instrument that's supposed to be a dollar, and then people go to the primary market and start taking the good collateral out, you're left with more bad collateral and it incentivizes effectively like a, a run on an exchange type of event. And that would be like the, the area of potential concern or something to just be aware of. And then again, it's just like, who who is desperate enough that they need this liquidity, it has to be on pretty favorable terms for Tether, I would imagine, right? It's probably pretty expensive financing if they're going to get this type of financing to post collateral of Bitcoin and ETH to a stablecoin provider and get stablecoins back. So somebody is in somewhat desperate need of liquidity, I would argue it appears from this. Yeah, another factor in this equation is also the concerns of Huobi's solvency and how Huobi have had, uh, there is a Sometimes the Tether and Huobi have been tightly coupled, but uh, but I feel like yeah, that's a separate discussion in itself. Mm -hmm. That was a great discussion. We went we went really pretty deep into wallets. <laughs> um, so I think with that, thanks so much, guys, for the discussion today. This was really awesome. Um, thanks everyone for joining, and we will uh, see you next week. Have a good rest of your week. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. 
Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any Fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would, or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero. Four zero one five six.